welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. This week's episode is the last in our 2019 summer series. Uh, and I hope, like me, you have enjoyed the last few weeks of listening to tales from the Melbourne science storytelling event, The Laboratory. Of course, a big thanks to the folks at The Laboratory and to all the speakers for letting us share their stories with you on the air. Uh, we do have a couple of great stories left for you today, though. Uh, later on, we'll be hearing from Melbourne comedian Jess Bois talking about the American anthropologist Ruth Benedict. But first, we have Associate Professor Megan Munsey. Now, Megan Munsey is a stem cell expert. Over the course of a 20-year career in academia and industry, she's gained a deep understanding of the issues associated with stem cell research and its clinical translation. She has co-authored numerous educational resources for the public, health and educational professionals. She has contributed to the development of policy at a domestic and international level, and she regularly provides advice and information to Australian patient advocacy groups and community members on stem cell science and associated issues. Now, during her PhD, Megan published the first proof of principle for therapeutic cloning, and prior to working in the stem cell field, she worked for over 10 years as a clinical embryologist in Australian IVF clinics. And probably enough, today she's talking about the pioneer of cloning, Sir John Gurdon. I want to talk about Sir John Gurdon because I was once a cloner. I was a clone warrior. And I started my PhD back in the mid-90s. And uh, back at that time... Cloning wasn't really a known thing. This was two years before Dolly the Sheep was born. And uh, I had this crazy research project where I wanted to look at, look at this concept called reprogramming. I was using and had worked in IVF, so I had this technique called ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection, where you can pick up an individual sperm and inject it into an oocyte and, and thereby fertilise the egg. And I had heard about some work that had been done in cattle cloning where they'd been able to make an embryo using a very similar technique. This technique was called somatic cell nuclear transfer, but it was very, very similar to take an egg, take out the chromosomes from the egg and put in a sort of a substitute uh, nucleus from, in this case, it was from a cumulus cell. And they were the cells that surround the egg. Anyway, so some, some people... Um, or a guy called Philip Kohler in uh, America, had done this work in cattle. And he'd made an embryo, but the embryo didn't grow. It didn't grow into a calf when it was put back into a uterus. And what I was interested in, in doing was just to, to use a mouse model to see if we could do you know, something similar, make a cloned embryo, but not try to make mice, but try to see if we could make stem cells from that embryo. And this was all really trying to come, and, and the reason I wanted to use stem cells is we had some markers where we could look at whether the cells were, were, were fully kind of restored, restored back to pluripotency, restored back to full function. Because back then there was a, a bit of a doubt around whether in the mammalian system you could go from a fully mature cell and take it back to a primitive cell. So that was my kind of crazy project. And uh, as I mentioned, there was this one paper, or one line from a paper that, from Philippe's work, uh, and, and one um, abstract from a, a Japanese study in mice. And, but I thought, I could already do this technique, so I'd already saved some time, you know? Um, and I thought I could just do this, be pretty simple. Started doing a bit of reading about, you know, why Philippe used this particular type of technology. And I came across this guy called John Gurdon. And he had published his work in the, in the 60s 
using frog uh, embryos and, and frog eggs. And he had done the first sort of proof of concept in, mam in, in um, amphibia, where he had taken this sort of gut cell and done this somatic cell nuclear transfer. So again, got rid of the maternal chromosomes, chucked in the gut nucleus, and that gut nucleus drove development and made little frogs. So I um, did a bit more reading about John, and I was absolutely fascinated, and I'd always been interested in the history of science, but I was just struck by how 40 years ago he'd done this, and he'd done it and at a time when uh, the concept that a cell could drive development, could be reprogrammed, was just completely against dogma. So I did a bit of reading about him. I did a bit of reading about what inspired him, the work that came before him, um, people like uh, King and Briggs and, and, and another guy called Speeman, who did some fantastic work. In fact, Speeman had used the hair of his baby, so baby hair, uh, to cut a, um, or, or cleave a salamander embryo. Because what he wanted to look at was where, what drives development and where, what part of the embryo is essential. Could he, could he, could he cleave the embryo and make twins? Could he cut it up? In different way and make more than twins. So he was really interested in sort of capacity. So anyway, that was all of the, the kind of the background, but I was really fascinated by what, what John did. And um, then of course Dolly the Sheep was born and the whole field kind of took off. And it was all really, really exciting because all of a sudden we had this incredible technology that perhaps could perhaps could help humans not to clone humans because that would be wrong. Same technology, but put back an embryo into a uterus, that would be wrong. But if we could take an embryo and make stem cells from it, oh my God, we could make cells for that patient that wouldn't be rejected. That could be a source of material. So it opened up this whole new, new kind of opportunity, I suppose. Certainly a lot of public angst. And my project, from being a very obscure project, suddenly became extremely interesting. Anyway, to cut a long story short, after four years of blood, sweat and tears, I actually was able to show the proof of concept in mouse. I could make these stem cells. And I went and worked in Edinburgh for a little while. And when I was at Edinburgh, John Gurdon came to give a special lecture. So I thought, fantastic, I'm going to get to go and speak to John. So I didn't know a lot about him. I knew he was a... Um, had, had gone to school, well, actually was an Ox Oxbridge Don. I knew he had, um, he was very much of the old school. Someone had told me he used to drive around Cambridge in a, a beautiful uh, MG. And I can kind of visualise it, born in 1930s, right? 33, I think he was born. So um, went and listened to John give his seminar and then uh, they'd arranged for me to spend a couple of hours with him and ended up spending the afternoon with him. And he was absolutely fascinating had this incredible talking before about describing people. He had this quaff of hair that used to flick like this the whole time. I was completely mesmerised. So he was about 77 at this stage, I think. And uh, he was just absolutely charming. And not only did he, he love talking about the science, he talked about all of these ethical issues and the implications of what we were doing. And um, I, just, I was just completely captivated. So... Um, when I, I was just talking about this a little bit before, um, but we got to we, we got to we got him very well, and he was really I was thrilled that he knew a bit, bit about my work, um, but uh, he he kind of hadn't ever I thought been really noted for his um, his work in certainly in the contemporary sciences. What happened about six years later is a guy called Shin Yamanaka in Japan. He found out there was a new way of making these pluripotent stem cells. Uh, not 
by using the black box of the egg, because we didn't really understand why the egg could reprogram the nucleus and drive development. But what Shinya did was he kind of identified some genes and if they were overexpressed in a skin cell, changed the skin cell over a couple of weeks back into a pluripotent stem cell. So he found another way to kind of do what John and, and others who had been trying to do, or at least were intrigued about, and um, was able to do this. So that was back in 2006. In 2012, it was, we all awoke to the news that Shin Yamanaka had been given the Nobel Prize for this discovery, this induced pluripotent stem cell, and was met with much acclaim. I was absolutely thrilled when the next bit of the news broadcast was that John Gurdon would share the Nobel Prize with him. And I thought that was so fitting because, you know, we celebrate success in terms of a discovery, but we often forget those who came before. And um, again, in, uh, typical of John, he went, when he was interviewed about his success, not only did he kind of acknowledge, obviously, the research that led before him, but he also acknowledged Ian Wilmot and his team. And he actually thought that the Nobel Prize should have been split between the three, which I thought was lovely. He also went on in his um, press conference and other interviews he's done subsequently to talk about how, um, how much drive, I suppose, you need in science and to reflect on the science, uh, on the report card he got from Eton when he left. And I thought I'd read, out it, I'd read it to you because John actually has it framed in his office. Um, and I just think it's really quite gorgeous. Um, so I have a printout here. Anybody else can download this from Wikipedia. Um, but it uh, um, it's obviously just says name, Gurdon, because of course there were no first names back then. And this is from his um, head of biology at Eton in 1949. It's been a disastrous half. His work has been far from satisfactory. His prepared stuff has been badly learned and several of his test pieces have been torn. One such piece prepared work so badly it was scored two marks out of a possible 50. His other work has been equally bad and several times he's been in trouble because he will not listen, but he will insist on doing his work his own way. I believe he has ideas about becoming a scientist. On his present showing, this is quite ridiculous. <laughs> if he can't learn simple biological facts, he would have no chance of doing work of a specialist and it'd be sheer waste of time for both on his part and of those who have to teach him. Luckily for us, John wasn't deterred by that report and apparently with his mother's help, he got a, um, an opportunity to go and study zoology and uh, I think he's made an enormous contribu contribution and every, um, every time I think and reflect about his work, I think, thank goodness for his persistence, he wasn't just passionate about um, this particular aspect of zoology. He had so many other interests, including he talks a lot about how we need to talk about science simply. And uh, he talks about the fact that he can't understand complex issues, so he doesn't like to talk about it. And I think it's something we should all remember how great it is to talk about science, but take our message and keep it simple. So thank you. This is called Cruel Machine, and um, it's about how uh, sometimes people people think science uh, sometimes takes away the mystery and beauty and poetry of the word and world and turn it into this cold, mechanistic, 
perhaps even cruel machine. But I think the the opposite's the case, actually. The more you know, the more amazing things come. So uh, this is not a cruel machine. So worth it So they tell you there's no purpose And it all comes down to chance And the universe don't know you Yeah, it's just a crazy dance And they tell you you're alone In a world that's cold and mean but just take a look around you This is not a cruel machine Oh no Cause we're living in a jungle And it's red in tooth and claw And we're dying without knowing What the hell we came here for but the social Darwinists were just out to kick the weak. We can be materialists, and it's not all bleak, cause everything connects. There's a hidden theme. This old world of ours, I'm telling you, it's not a cruel machine. Cause there's also symbiosis in your mitochondria Altruism from meiosis You were born inside a So there's no need for religion There's no spirit in the sky Just this wondrous evolution Is what led to you and I There's no magic in the stars They're just hot and dense But there's still beauty in it all It makes perfect sense cause Everything connects It's a guy and scene This old world of ours I'm telling you It's not a cruel machine Just take a look around And internalize this meme it's a wonderland, this world of ours is not a cruel machine. That was Melbourne songwriter Charlie Marshall with his song, Not a Cruel Machine. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. All right.
Right, and our next and final Abora Story speaker for 2019 is Jess Moi. Now, Jess Moi is a Melbourne comedian who regularly performs at the Brunswick Green in Melbourne. She has two kids and lets them mix bicarb soda with vinegar whenever they want. Jess has lived overseas, including in Nigeria, where she learned more than she wanted to about Ebola. Today, Jess Moi is going to tell us all about the American anthropologist Ruth Benedict. So much of the trouble is because I am a woman. To me, it seems a very terrible thing to be a woman. That's not me talking. I love being a woman. I get to raise two kids and get paid 87 cents to the dollar. Am I right, ladies? (laughs) And as long as I'm not home alone, I can tolerate watching The Handmaid's Tale. No, uh, that's a quote from the diary of Ruth Fulton Benedict, the renowned American anthropologist. She was born in 1887 and she died in 1948. Anthropology is, of course, the study of humanity and there's some debate about whether it is actually a science. Now, the NASA website tells me that science is observing the world, watching and listening observing and recording, which makes me want to take out restraining orders against all my scientist friends. Uh, but, But it also tells me that observing and recording things about human beings counts as a science, as long as you're not specialising in ex-partners. A lot of it is very wrong, (laughs) just to warn you at the the top. Ruth spent her early years on a farm in upstate New York. Um, She was of old American farming stock. Um, Six of her ancestors had fought in the Revolutionary War. Her mum was a school teacher who had very unusually for that time attended uh, university. Her father, um, who died when Ruth was only 21 months old, had been a homeopathic physician and surgeon. He actually um, contracted the illness that killed him while he was performing a surgery. Ruth idealised him, although she knew only a little of what he was actually like. She later reflected, From my earliest childhood, I recognised two worlds. The world of my father, which was the world of death and which was beautiful, and the world of her mother, of confusion and explosive weeping, which I repudiated. In the Victorian era, people were fascinated by death. Uh, They had picnics at cemeteries. They made jewellery from the hair of loved ones who had passed away. So her romanticisation of death was not unusual, but she resented what she called her mother's cult of grief. Ruth described herself as a physically and emotionally aloof child. She would often daydream and retreat into her imagination. She said... I have always used the world of make-believe with a certain desperation, which would have made her a perfect press secretary for the Trump administration, Uh, but but not such a good fit for a 19th century farmhouse uh, where there was an emphasis on pragmatism and hard work. She had tantrums and she ran away. She had episodes of vomiting and illness, and at times she had episodes of depression. 
As, a me- as an infant, she contracted measles and she developed a hearing problem because of that illness. But her hearing problem wasn't actually discovered until she started school. She remained partially deaf for her entire life. As a child, she felt like an outsider in her family, especially compared to her little sister, Marjorie, who was always praised for her beauty and who didn't have any of the behavioural problems that Ruth did. Um, And she just refused to embrace the cardinal values that were pressed on women during the Victorian era, values of purity, piety, submissiveness and domesticity. She went on to attend Vassar College, uh, the same university her mother had studied at, and she majored in literature. When Ruth was at uni, romantic friendships were in vogue. Uh, They had these really cute terms for them. They were called smashes or crushes or spoons. Uh, And it it was this common thing where there there, there were these elaborate courtship rituals between female college students where they exchanged letters and mementos and candy and even locks of hair. Uh, so for all the young people out there, uh, that's the one thing Tinder is missing, you know, this little function for exchanging your hair. Uh, hot tip. Um, <laughs> um, in the early 20th century, colleges like Vassar regularly held all-female dances where people could just smash um, as much as they wanted, I guess. Uh, In 1914, Ruth married Stanley Benedict um, and he went on to become a professor of biochemistry at Cornell Medical School, Um, but the marriage didn't work out and they divorced in 1931. Ruth was romantically linked with another prominent female anthropologist of the time, her student, Margaret Mead. Now, Mead said during the early years of her marriage, Ruth's marriage, when she had hoped for children... She continued to experiment very tentatively, without any commitment, with what her culture had to offer. Dancing, literature, social work, biography and poetry. If Ruth were alive today, the list would no doubt have included pottery, Pilates and occasionally speaking at Labora Story. Uh, the culture did not yet offer kombucha homebrewing classes. Um, Ruth attended some lectures at the New School for Social Research and then she did a course in anthropology. She went on to Columbia Grad School uh, where she worked under Franz Boas, um, the father of American anthropology. And he was also a friend and like a father figure to Ruth who uh, called him Papa Franz. Uh, She got her PhD in 1923 and she joined Columbia's teaching faculty. Fieldwork was very difficult for her because of her hearing impairment, so she often had to rely on work that others had done and conduct her anthropology practice at a distance. According to Margaret Mead, it was not until the medical evidence was definite that she would never have children that Ruth began to consider a greater commitment to anthropology, and not until her field trip to Pima in 1927 when she suddenly saw the possibility of viewing culture not only as a condition within which personality developed, but essentially like a personality writ large. That she assumed the responsibility of a genuine contribution to anthropological thinking, rather than simply doing chores for anthropology in return for the rewards of using anthropological thought in giving her a personal interpretation of life. 
Her biggest contribution to the field of anthropology was her book, Patterns of Culture. That book is one of the major intellectual works of the 20th century. It's been translated into 14 languages. And in that book, Ruth Benedict compares three different cultures. And the central idea is that culture tends to have a pattern or a configuration, like the personality of an individual, but on a grand scale. What she said was that the life history of the individual is first and foremost an accommodation to the patterns and standards traditionally handed down in his community. So within this meta-personality of a culture, individuals are either successes or misfits or outcasts or internet trolls. Um, and, you know, there was this description of her feelings for those who by age or sex or temperament or accidents of life, history, were out of the main current of their culture and needed special help. Patterns of culture advance the idea of cultural relativism, the idea that beliefs, customs and morals originate in culture and are not absolute. She also worked against racism within that rubric of understanding and appreciating cultural difference. With a colleague from the anthropology department at Columbia, she made a pamphlet called Races of Mankind. It was intended for American troops and it set out very simply the scientific case against racism. She's also known for her book, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, which is about the culture and society of Japan and incorporated the results of wartime research. That book's been criticised on some fronts, uh, but it's also been praised um, and it was very much of its time. Ruth Benedict didn't really fit the society that she was born into. She was of her culture and she was very much apart from her culture. She said, the purpose of anthropology is to make the world safe for human differences. And it seems that she did make it a little bit safer. Thank you. And that is it for today's episode of Lost in Science and for the 2019 summer series with Tales from the Laboratory. Thanks once again for joining us these past few weeks and listening to some wonderful stories of some wonderful scientists. We're back to normal next week with scientific news and analysis. We've got some great things lined up for you. We have some fascinating interviews lined up for you. We have a few listener questions that we are addressing. They should be pretty interesting and you know, this year is the International Year of the Periodic Table, so I'm sure that will get a, a bit of a look in. There'll be a lot of elements going down this year. Now, Lost in Science is, of course, recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Uh, we would love you to get in touch with us. You can join those ranks of listeners asking questions and have your queries, your puzzles answered on air. Uh, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. We're also on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. Um, if you don't want to interact directly, you can just listen to our podcast. You can find us on any of your favorite podcasting apps. If you're able to give us a good rating and a review, please do so. As that kind of helps make us more aware to the people out there and spread the joy, the science love. Or you can, of course, find us on the radio where you found us this time. Same time every week we're on with Stu, Claire and Chris getting lost in science.